Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. Back in black, I hit the sack. I listen to stick to wrestling because it's totally black. I want to thank my friends in ACDC for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we will give you a raw bone podcast. And we know that there are some good podcasts out there. I totally give up that point, but I maintain that there's only one wicked good podcast and it's Stick to Wrestling. But don't just take it from me. Let's ask no less than Vince McMahon what he thinks. Vince. What would your reaction be if someone were to claim that there's another wicked good podcast other than Stick to Wrestling? Bark like a dog. Come on. Tell me you're sorry. Harsh, perhaps, but justifiable in my opinion. Vince doesn't like anyone dissing his favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. Now, before I bring on our guest, follow me on Twitter. Just put in the name John McAdam, and it's pretty easy to figure out who the wrestling guy is. Um, also. Join our Facebook group if you have not already. Just put in Stick to Wrestling in the search and it'll come up. Amongst other great things, we are doing a 1987 Crockett Cup Fantasy Tournament, which includes the dream match, in my opinion, that's being voted on right now with the team of Ric Flair and Arn Anderson against Stan Hansen and Ted DiBiase. Stan and Ted were teaming in Japan in spring of 1987, so that was really good. Our guest is making his debut on Stick to Wrestling, a good friend of mine for a long time. We're finally having him on, Brent Nicholas. Brent, thank you for taking the time. Oh, great to be here. Pleasure to be here. Glad to give it a shot for the first time. Hopefully I'm entertaining. I'm confident you will be. You are the first, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? This is the first time we've had a guest debut since Sean, unfortunately, left the show. And, you know, hey, be honored, dude. Big shoes to fill. (laughs) There you go. Brett, you and I, we were both into the WWF in 2001 when this crazy angle took place. And this is where we got the audio clip from, where Vince McMahon was running around with Trish Stratus as his girlfriend or his, his side dish, whatever she was. Vince turned on her on a Monday Night Raw episode. And then the next week, Trish comes out and she apologizes to Vince McMahon. and. Then Vince, in order to take her back, orders her to get down on all fours and bark like a dog. And then from there, he yells at her, take off your clothes. And she strips down to her bra and panties. I was glad I was watching this alone, my friend. (laughs) Yeah, um, 2001 is an interesting look back at where we were uh, in relations to women in wrestling. been quite a big step at least in american wrestling since then with the emphasis on it in wwe today AEW, and whatnot but i'll admit back then i i was into that angle i mean when they did the wrestlemania match and linda mcmahon stood up from the wheelchair i was marking out <laughs> that was one of my favorite wrestlemanias if not my favorite and it just you know the product in my opinion i know not everyone's going to agree was really good back then. I mean, it could be totally out there. That angle was totally out there, even for the WWF that was completely out there. 
I, I was a huge fan at that point. I mean, you had the best workers who'd come over from WCW combined with some of the craziness that was fun in WWF. It was a great time to be a fan. It was a shame that ECW and WCW went out of business right before that, but uh, I, I thought WWF was operating on full cylinder at that point from that January to WrestleMania point of view with Austin and Rock and it was just firing on all cylinders. Yeah, and right after that WrestleMania quickly went downhill. I just want to share a quick, two quick stories about that angle. One, about I think two days later, I got a call from someone who was more of a friend of a friend than one of my friends, but he was the district manager at Applebee's, and someone called or wrote in, emailed, I don't know, to complain that like WWF was playing in the bar at Applebee's <laughs> and this angle was taking place, right? Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, what happened? And he couldn't believe what I was telling him. He's like, I can't have this stuff on, and, you know, at my at, at the restaurant. So I don't know what came of that. But I was like, wow, if WWF gets banned at Applebee's. That's bad news. Hey, they still had Hooters. <laughs> True. <laughs> And the other part of it was I saw Vince McMahon being interviewed by Bob Costas, and Vince was being a real ass during this entire interview. Uh, and, oh, yeah. And Bob played the footage, and Vince is like, well, first of all, it's not like anyone made Trish do it. And I'm like, come on. Everyone knows that if you don't go along with whatever creative says, and it's like this to this day in the WWF, they suddenly find nothing for you, and you're devalued, and you're losing money. But secondly, he's out there going, well, you keep watching, you know, Vince McMahon, the character Vince McMahon, he emphasized, is going to get his. And I'm like, you know, here we are almost 20 years later. No one remembers. Well, Brent remembers. (laughs) I'd say like 10 percent of the people who, you know, saw Trish, like remembers what happened at WrestleMania. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. No, I mean, there was some mild revenge in the in that match. But it didn't change the fact that she did what she had to do on screen and off screen, you know, for that for that character. And it's not like the McMahon family hasn't continued to act the way they have for the next 19 years afterwards. No, I mean, and, and you know, they're I'm at the point I don't like to spit out cliches here and you know offer on this program. But like the McMahons are just terrible on TV. Stephanie. I mean, the WWF women's division is outstanding, but anytime Stephanie sticks her face in it, I don't know what the word for demasculization is for women, but she does that to all to the girls. I, you know what it is, is events for all his faults when he was working with Austin and other talent, he wasn't afraid to get them over by looking bad. Stephanie doesn't do that. Stephanie, no, she does She's going to stand in your face and she's going to tell you what a loser you are. And you're going to sit there and take it. And, you know, you're not even going to get a match or even get a chance to slap her. No, I mean, you know, Stephanie, if if she was part of this conversation, she'd be like, well, once every 10 years, I get thrown into a big pool of pudding or something like that. But yeah, by somebody who was retiring. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Her was leaving. uh, But yeah, I mean, I think she's she's such a net negative. Shane is such a net negative. And we've gotten to the point where I think Vince is a net negative on TV. He used to be great. He used to not be afraid to show ass on TV, but he just doesn't do it anymore. No, no, not much. All right. Today's show, we are going to be talking about cards that took place this week 
1986, I kind of noticed we don't talk about 1986 a lot on this show, and time to give that year its due. I had a lot of fun. We'll start with the World Wrestling Federation invading the Mid-South Coliseum in Memphis on September 11th, 1986. They drew 5,000, which I thought was respectable for this card. Uh, Opener, Cousin Junior against Jose Luis Rivera, not much to say there. Coco Ware over Mr. X. Mr. X is Danny Davis learning how to wrestle, and I think they had already started the heel referee thing. Coco was a big deal in Memphis. Uh, I think it was Christmas night or was the very end of 1985. He wrestled Ric Flair for the NWA title in Memphis at the Mid-South Coliseum. Any thoughts on either Danny Davis or Coco Ware, Brett? Well... You know, as somebody, I grew up in Sacramento, so my exposure to Memphis at that time was zero. So Coco was somebody coming in fresh. And he was like a lot of guys that came in his faces, a lot of energy. You know, he he was fun, but he didn't come across as somebody I ever perceived as as a threat. You know, somebody who I even thought was an intercontinental type talent. So that's that's kind of. Funny story, though, uh, on Coco, years later, I had gone to an indie show, I think it was about 1998, and Steve Sachs, the baseball player of all people, had been a guest referee, and they'd set up an angle where he was going to do a tag match with Jake Roberts, Greg Valentine, and Honky Tonk Man the next month. Well, Sachs apparently backed out of it, and who should show up as a replacement but Coco Beware, which we actually thought was a lot better than Steve Sachs, but... uh, (laughs) I thought that was interesting. Uh, But then uh, Danny Davis was such a fantastic angle. Again, especially for somebody like me who at the time was just, we got cable around 1985 in my neighborhood. So my exposure to anything non-WWF was was very minimal. And I started watching Crockett on uh, TBS and caught some AWA and things like that. So we'd never seen a, a heel ref angle. So when Danny Davis came in and did that, oh, the, the, the heat was off the charts. I mean, he was just major heat. Problem was, he could never back it up in the ring, which is why he pretty quickly fizzled out once they put him in the ring, did some endless matches with Sam Houston, and that was that. Yeah, it was kind of strange how they just made Danny Davis a referee again without any explanation. but. uh By the way, that is former Los Angeles Dodgers and New York Yankees, probably a couple of other teams I'm forgetting, second baseman Steve Sachs. The Yankees always seem to have a ton of big-time wrestling fans in the locker room. I know Dave Winfield was a big wrestling fan, so was Dave Rigetti. They suck anyway, but I'll... (laughs) I'm a Red Sox fan, kids. Sorry. Coco Weir, I had the same observation that you did. I'm like, wow, this guy has a lot of charisma, a lot of color, and he's just not going to get over because he's too small. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and the bird for me, you know, in 86, I was 12, turned 13 in the summer. I was kind of past the stage where a colorful bird was going to get me flapping my wings in the crowd. <laughs> so that was fine for the six and seven year old kids. But you know, I, I was getting more into, you know, work rates, if you will, and and taking it a little more seriously. So that that wasn't going to really click with me either. Yeah, I mean, same here. I mean, next match, Dick Slater defeats Steve Lombardi. (laughs) On another show, Brett, I I said this maybe a year and a half ago. 
It was like the episode in the old Batman reruns where the Joker kidnaps a surfer and he has this machine where all of his surfing ability was transferred from the surfer to the Joker. I think someone hooked up Dick Slater to that machine and sucked all the charisma out of him as soon as he came to the WWF. Doing a, a Confederate rebel gimmick in a Northeastern promotion just... I don't even know what kind of thinking would would, would come up with that. I, I it just to me that seemed dead in the water from day one. Yeah, you know what? I mean, the gimmick is questionable, but like Slater just seemed. I mean, before he got to the WWF, he was a main eventer in Mid South Wrestling, and he had main evented all over the place: Georgia, Southwest, Florida, etc. And then he comes to the WWF, and it's like he it's like he totally lost it. I I didn't get it. No, and and it's crazy when you go back and you can see the things on the network or you know wherever YouTube tape trading back in the days. Um, yeah, <laughs> you know the, those things where he was involved in so many great angles with Flair and Piper and Briscoes and all that sort of thing. And yeah, he gets to the WWF and you're, but I don't think he's alone in that with with Vince taking things that made guys special other places and finding some way to just sap it out. And I don't know if it was by design to make them look lesser, like, oh, here was this guy was a main eventer somewhere else, and now he's curtain jerking. But it, it was something that happened a lot. Yeah, I mean, it, with, with Slater, though, it's like he never got it back. Like, the he left the WWF in 87, and I was hoping JCP would sign him and, and bring him back to life. And when they finally got around to it in 1989, like, Slater was a shell of his former self. Wasn't wasn't he part of that awful cowboy outlaw group briefly? Uh, the the collection agency with he and Dick Murdoch in ninety one. Okay, yeah. I remember something along those lines and it was just like yeah, that didn't do much for me either. No, nah, he did he did some fringy stuff in WCW or the NWA after that, and but he, he just never got rolling again. Kamala defeats Lanny Poffo. Kamala had recently returned to the WWF, uh, he was there in 84, and then he left for a while, and now he's back recently. I will tell you that when Kamala debuted in the WWF in 1984, my black friends were offended by that gimmick. Your thoughts, Brent? <sighs> Looking back, I can certainly see it. I mean, as an 11-year-old kid, I just thought yeah. it was cool. He was wrestling Andre the Giant. As I a couple of years later became a little more politically aware, socially aware, and society changed a little bit, even from year to year. Sure. It struck me as a little offensive. I mean, I started to question all of the, why do all the Samoans have hard heads? Why, you know, slick do the things he's doing. So Kamala, it, it was definitely something that crossed a line as a lot yeah. of, WWF stuff did Adrian Adonis um, being a big one for me looking back since I was so in the Roddy Piper. Now I kind of cringe, but if, if you will have to say one thing about Kamala, the guy really leaned into that character I and mean, he yes. played it to the hilt. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I remember like not disliking it, but I remember wanting, I remember going to the Providence civic center because they had a big card that was headlined by Andre the Giant versus Kamala. And I don't remember it like being bad work rate wise, even though it probably was. 
there, you know, they had a Andre and Kamala had a pretty decent cage match in '84. If you've seen it on the, it was even released on a Andre the Giant DVD set they did at one point. Yeah, the one from Toronto. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah so who knows? Maybe it was good. All right. <laughs> Ricky Steamboat defeats Jake the Snake Roberts. This feud starts when they had a match on Saturday night's main event. Looked like just another match coming in, but Jake legit knocks Ricky out with a DDT on the concrete and just drags his lifeless body into the ring and starts putting a snake on him. Any thoughts on this feud? I loved it as a kid. I was a big Ricky Steamboat fan. I mean, he was as pure a baby face as you could get. So the feud was so good with that angle. They repeated it again with Randy Savage the next year, kind of with doing the same, you know, a similar uh, gimmick of him being uh, hit with the ring bell instead. This feud, what's interesting about this is, for me as a kid, Jake Roberts, this was one of the first times where the crowd started turning somebody working heel into a face when they still were doing very heelish tactics. And Jake Roberts actually turned face pretty much right after this Ricky Steamboat angle. Yeah, it was uh, March 87, so just a few months later. And before that, they did a trial balloon where they sent Jake Roberts around the horn against, oh, not around the horn, in certain markets against King Kong Bundy. It was a a total heel versus heel match. Yeah, I I just think it started to show the the changing audience. You also saw some of that in JCP at the same time. If you watch TBS with the guys standing in the front row wearing the suits, putting up the four horsemen signs cheers for the midnight express for some you you really started to see more heel fans being more active in the crowd oh yeah i mean the the wwf like that i grew up in the bob backland era the baby faces were almost 100 percent cheered at the boston garden on tv etc and as time went on all the the fans started to fan base started to change in every promotion yeah definitely definitely but steamboat i mean there's a small, tiny part of me that just wishes he once would have gone heel. And maybe if he didn't you know, have his career-ending injury in uh, 94, he might have done that at some point. Done a, like a, a Bob Backlund gimmick where Backlund snap, maybe Steamboat does it. But I, I just don't know that anybody was as pure a baby face as, as he was. He is the only wrestler I am aware of from that era that literally never worked heel. I mean, literally never, not one match. I mean, the Von Erich, you know, people might say, oh, Kerry Von Erich or Kevin Von Erich. Then they were heels at least once in Florida, one, one TV taping. Kind of a weird match coming up. The WWF World Tag Team Champions, the British Bulldogs, defeat Jimmy Jack Funk and Hercules. You know what? I wish I'd looked this up before the show. I'm thinking Dory Funk Jr. might have been scheduled and might have left by this point. This would have been about the time he was leaving. Then they kept Jimmy Jack around as a jobber for a few more months. You could see him on prime time doing the jobs and and whatnot. But yeah, it definitely smells like a no-show bit where somebody was a last-minute substitution. And Hercules at this point hadn't really taken off is a character so i mean this this just smells of a as a glorified squash yeah exactly jimmy jack funk was was never getting over i mean i, I heard a long time ago that the funks were terry funk and dory funk jr were supposed to feud with the british bulldogs over the wwf tag team titles 
And Terry so did not want to do that that he faked blowing out his knee at WrestleMania 2. I know that part. He faked blowing out his knee so that he didn't have to do it. Uh, yeah, uh, Terry didn't like WWF, which is a shame, too, because, man, he, he, he was such a breath of fresh air compared to some of the rock and wrestling glitzy stuff that WWF was doing. He was just so raw. And I, I mean, his match with Hogan on Saturday night's main event was about as good a Hogan match as you would have seen in the 80s. I agree. I totally agree. Next up, we have a little bit of a weird match. Well, in context, Roddy Piper defeats Paul Orndorff by disqualification. I say it's weird because Piper had just turned babyface, I want to say, hmm, three or four weeks ago. It not, became official- not even that. I, I looked it up. Okay. It was literally August 23rd was when it showed on TV. Oh, wow. All right. So, so they two weeks. Mu- yeah. They must have been advertising this as either, or you're assuming heel versus heel, or you kind of figure out that Roddy Piper's turning babyface. He was getting cheers against Mr. T, of all people, at WrestleMania, too. So, yeah. I mean, it was inevitable. Yeah, he, he took the summer off. I think, he, I think WrestleMania 2 was his last match for a while, and then when he came back in the flower shop and taken over for Piper's Pit, it became a natural feud between he and Adonis. However, my feeling is that I think certain people made sure that Roddy Piper did not surpass Hulk Hogan as the number one babyface, and that's why they had him feuding with Adonis. That's why they had him feuding with Morocco, who was you know really stale by that point. I- I think that, and I say this as somebody whose favorite pay-per-view of all time is WrestleMania three. You know, I, that was a point where I was more into the WWF than any time in my life. I lived it. And I thought Roddy Piper versus Adrian Adonis was a bigger match than Hulk Hogan, Andre in my world. That's how much I loved Roddy Piper. (laughs) So, you know, seeing him, I, I can still bring up the memories of him destroying the flower shop and holding the bat and screaming. I mean, just amazing television. And like I said, in looking back, it's horribly cringeworthy for the homophobic overtones and things like that. But man, was Piper just absolutely amazing on the mic. And what's funny about this Piper Orndorff match is it's a complete flip-flop of roles. You know, yeah. because they did the whole feud in 85 after WrestleMania, where Orndorff was a face, Piper was the heel. And they never really had a definitive blow-off, to be honest. No, back then, uh, you just had the, you know, the the Texas death match or whatever at the arena, and that was it. I mean, I, I think I can remember in Philadelphia, they wound up having Bruno and Orndorff against Piper and Orton in a cage, and that's how that's how it ended there. I'm not even remembering it. I don't think they did Piper and Orndorff in Boston, but anyway, I don't think they did it in No, they did it in New York. I don't know. WWF World's Heavyweight Title Match, another kind of weird match. Hulk Hogan defeats the Iron Sheik. I say it's a weird match because Iron Sheik had long since established himself as a tag team guy by this point. And unless they did Hogan and Orndorff in Memphis before this, I'm not understanding why we're not having Roddy Piper and the Sheik and Hogan versus Orndorff. I I had similar thoughts when I saw it. I was kind of like, was there a no show? Was there a program going on with Hogan where somebody left or got injured? Because this was 
prime Orndorff Hogan territory. Orndorff had turned. He was with Heenan. And the Iron Sheik, really, I mean, he was not a world title threat at this point. I mean, even his tag team with Volkov was being phased out to a degree. Yeah. So it's a really, really odd booking. And one that I can say definitely explains why they didn't get more than 5,000 people. Because that's that's not a Hogan match you're, you you sell to a crowd. I mean, even even saying stereotypically a Memphis crowd of people that are you know real patriotic, love the USA type angles. It's the Iron Sheik. He, he was old news. Yeah, exactly. He was he had more than worn out his welcome by this point. So I mean, five thousand in Memphis is decent. You know, especially considering that. You know, you have the Memphis promotion running every Monday night, although they they were weak in 19. They had a very weak 1986. And, you know, it's funny about that is because for me, whenever anybody asks me, what's my favorite year in wrestling? I always tell them, well, I have to cheat. It's summer of 86 to summer of 87, that time frame, because everything for me was hitting on all cylinders in the WWF. I had discovered Jim Crockett promotions and was just, like wow this this stuff's different and it's new and it's exciting and i i thought that uh you know rick flair was just the most charismatic thing i'd ever seen in my life and it, it just that time period for me as a wrestling fan it was right before i went into high school i went into high school in the fall of 87 so it was really that last time before my life became a little busier and wrestling got pushed off to the side a little bit. And so I was watching six, seven, eight wrestling shows a weekend. <laughs> that sounds about what it was like for me. I mean, we got so much wrestling on, on not only syndication, but on cable. And, and I basically just got WWF and JCP, but JCP was putting out so much television by this point, And I wasn't complaining. Well, I think the, the key for, for me was at that point with cable, when it first came out, they had a lot of larger UHF stations that got put on cable. So I was getting KTLA out of Los Angeles. I was getting WWOR out of New York. I was getting WSBK out of Boston. You know that one. So we were getting all these wrestling shows from all over the place. I was getting a Dallas station. So in addition to all these different wrestling I got to watch a ton of baseball. I mean, I was seeing Angels games, Red Sox games, Rangers games, in addition to the typical Braves, Cubs, and my local teams. But you know what happened is the your local UHF station said, hey, wait a second, I paid for exclusive rights to the Cosby show, and now it's being shown 19 times a day on six other UHF stations on cable. And so they had to start blacking it out. And then the cable was just like, well, this blacking everything out is just too much work. And so they ditched them all until it was just TBS, WGN, and WOR again. Yeah, well, I remember the day we lost WOR. It was January 1983. And what a dark day, man. I mean, we had so much fun, you know, growing up, watching the WWF show at midnight, uh, you know, on a Saturday night after we had a couple of beers. And just that, that pure era that era in my life was suddenly over with no warning. Well, that's wild because we actually kept WWR out in Sacramento until like 1990. So I got to watch WWF on Saturday mornings along with roller derby, by the way. And um, I got to see the early days of the Morton Downey Jr. show on WWR. Oh, you must have loved that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, well, not quite my politics today, but it was uh, it was funny. It was super funny back then. I got a kick out of it. <laughs> I, I I remember we got that show summer of '88 on WSBK, and I remember watching it and thinking it was funny. And that lasted about a week. Like every show was was just like every other show. But anyway, on to JCP. This is. September 12th, 1986, the County Hall in Charleston, South Carolina. Dutch Mantell, who had recently entered into JCP, defeats Thunderfoot number two. I am a huge Dutch Mantell fan, and in my opinion, they did not push him correctly. You know, I didn't get to see a lot of Dutch Mantell outside of JCP. My largest exposure to Dutch has actually been him as a commentator and an announcer and a manager. I absolutely love his commentating work in Smoky Mountain Wrestling when I've done my rewatch. I mean, he's just really good. He knows how to get talent over while still being a heel. And when he did wrestle his few matches there, he was great at getting the crowd to just be ready to rip them apart and get the baby face over. Yeah, I absolutely loved Dutch Mantel's commentating in Smoky Mountain. I remember when he left, he left for an opportunity to be the booker in Puerto Rico. And I asked Jim Cornette about it. And he's like, well, people tend not to stay in Puerto Rico forever. And when Dutch yeah. you know, is, is ready to, you know, when, when Dutch comes back, we're ready to take him back. But at the same time, like that show was a major blow for Smoky Mountain Wrestling, in my opinion, when they lost Dutch. It, it was. He was the he was the heart and soul of it is on commentary. He really was. Yeah. Next up, Misty Blue defeats Linda Dallas. We wrestle together and we make disgusting pornography together. Uh, Bobby Jaggers over Thunderfoot number one. I'll share a memory. I remember when Bobby Jaggers got here, my friends were like, oh, this guy sucks. I'm like, yeah, but he used to be really good when he was in Florida and no one believed me. Uh, You know, it kind of struck me as funny as that this is uh, what I grew up on on WWF is split the tag teams and do two singles matches. Yeah. You know, split the the Kansas Jayhawks and the Thunderfoots, and boom. By this point, though, the Thunderfoots were, you know, they'd done their their real run at the top in any territories, and they were just there to collect a paycheck and do the job. Yeah, I was, I mean, the joke going around at the time was they need to put together a heel tag team called the Kansas State Wildcats and have a big feud. Uh. <laughs> Jimmy Garvin over Sam Houston. Jimmy Garvin showed up spring of 1986. Sam has been playing the confused young baby face for a while, and that was getting old. I never connected with Sam Houston. I mean, I, I admit I was always, a, you know, for lack of a better term, size queen. Um, <laughs> I always liked the bigger wrestlers back then, and... You had to have a special something to break through with that with me. You had to be a Savage, a Piper, a Bret Hart. Sam Houston was not one of those. I think there is no better reference than Size Queen. But anyway, (laughs) Dick Murdoch teams up with the Rock and Roll Express, Ricky Morton and Robert Gibson, and they beat Big Bubba Rogers and the Midnight Express. There's so much to say here. Dusty and Dick Murdoch were now let me go back a little bit. Dick Murdoch had just come back to the territory, I want to say like a month earlier, and they were building a feud for Dick Murdoch and Ric Flair. They never looked, made it look like Dick Murdoch had a chance in hell to win the NWA title. 
Despite he and Dusty Rhodes being real-life good friends, Dusty never seemed to be able to figure out how to push Dick Murdoch. And I never I never quite got that either, because to me, he was so smooth in the ring, and he had the size, and he presented just an air of being able to take care of himself, if you understand what that means in a, yeah. in a ring. You know, and to me, his run with... Adonis in WWF and as tag teams, I, I thought was really good. I mean, I thought they were a good team and I thought they got kind of shortchanged on how long their run was going to be. And I don't know the circumstances on why it ended as quickly as it did. But to me, Murdoch in the States never seemed after that to really get the push he deserved anywhere. Yeah, Murdoch, my understanding is that the WWF was very high on the tag team of Barry Windham and Mike Rotundo and they just wanted to push them and that was the end of it. I'm not sure why Murdoch and Adonis didn't hang around after that, but I agree with you. They were a phenomenal tag team. Now, one thing, I don't want to be too repetitive. I know I've said it on the show before. Big Bubba Rogers was hot in 1986, and they cooled him off by having him do jobs on TV. I literally thought he had main eventing Starcade potential. Uh, any thoughts on Big Bubba from you? Uh, love Big Bubba. Funny story is he actually, um, when he became the big boss man, my brother worked in an electronics store with me, and you had nicknames under your real name. It's supposed to be fun. Um, and his nickname, because he had a shaved head and a goatee, was Big Boss Man. So we used to use that when anybody, whenever anybody wanted to talk to a supervisor. We just pretend it was him, bring him over, because, well, hey, it said Big Boss Man under it. <laughs> so that was how we used that. I liked Big Bubba. I think he became a much better worker, obviously, as he slimmed down some. But to me, the the story of him working from the prelims and then becoming the bodyguard, if you recognize that as a fan, that was that was kind of an Easter egg, if you will, like on a DVD where it's like, oh, cool. I he was a, he was a jobber. And now look at him. And to me, that added a little bit to my enjoyment of him getting a push. But I don't know. I don't know exactly why they felt that he should be de-pushed at a certain point, but I, I definitely wonder if that's why he was so quick to head off the WWF. And obviously JCP lost quite a key person down the road. Yeah. I mean, they pushed him a little bit in 1987 when they made him the UWF champion. And then of course they go on to devalue the w uh, the UWF championship. And they made it obvious that, Bubba's only role as the UWF champion was to hand the ball off to Steve Williams. Yeah, and, and I was a big Steve Williams fan. I'll, I'll, I'll admit it. Uh, I mean, this would go later if we talk about that show. But 1986, first time I flipped UWF on, it showed up on our cable. First time I saw Steve Williams, I was just like, ooh, wow, this guy's got something. And he, he really he, he had that innate charisma that connected with me. But... Those UWF titles, they were, they, I mean, they brought, people make fun of Vince for the invasion, but man, I don't think Crockett did much better with the UWF buyout and how he treated those guys. No, not at all. I mean, I, I said it before, but it was at a time where JCP needed to start pushing new talent and it landed in the, in their laps and they just didn't care about it. But anyway, next up we have. The NWA National Heavyweight Champion, Wahoo McDaniel, defending the title against Tully Blanchard. Neither the national title nor Wahoo McDaniel was, was going to be around much longer. 
Yeah, I, Wahoo, I didn't get to see his glory days much. So to me, he came across as a little old, yeah. <laughs> not not to be mean. But by this point, I was just, he didn't seem nearly as interesting to a younger person like me as the Four Horsemen, as the Midnight Express, as Magnum TA, or you know Dusty Rhodes, or any of those. And so for me, Wahoo just didn't do a whole lot for me. And I, I feel bad for saying that because I know he had such a great career before that, but time stopped for no man, and by 86, time had got to a point. No, I, I agree with you 100%. I mean, it was almost like Dusty brought Wahoo in like the very end of 1985 and gave him that one last babyface glory run in, you know, J- JCP in the Carolinas where he was a legend. And then it was like, look, you know, like you said, you know, uh, Father Time remains undefeated. And yet he still went on to the AWA where Father Time had no meaning. But <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's exactly what he did after that. He went to the AWA and he was the booker and his booking just wasn't that good. Now, now, now neither of us are trying to diss Wahoo. That's just the way it was. The NWA National Heavyweight Championship sometime in October got merged between Nikita Koloff and Wahoo McDaniel. And as I was watching live, as they announced almost right after Wahoo won this title, that there was going to be a, a merger match between, you know, for the, Nikita Koloff, the U.S. title, Wahoo with the national title. I was like, OK, I understand why Wahoo won the belt to hand it off to Nikita. Nikita was a force of nature. I, I mean, he just he had that it factor with his size. I almost think he would have been better in WWF to a degree, but he, he was the future and Wahoo was the past. And so they were going to, they were going to run with that. And then of course, later on his, his baby face turn was great TV and got over huge with the crowd when they needed it in a pinch. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, six, what was it like six weeks later he turned baby face and it was huge. And, you know, speaking of the Facebook group, someone brought up like, you know, what would be a good alternative to King Kong Bundy being the opponent for Hogan at WrestleMania? Like Bundy would have been maybe my fifth or sixth choice. I mean, I think my first choice would have been do whatever I need to do to get Nikita Koloff to leave JCP and come to the WWF. I don't know if he had a contract or not, if he didn't have a contract, I, I would have definitely gotten him. I would have done whatever I needed to do. And if I, he was under contract, I would have had him do whatever he needed to do to get out of it. Yeah, I, I've actually heard that so many times. that I think people have made up a rumor that it actually was going to be him uh, because the Bundy angle did start kind of late. Very late. The WrestleMania too. Mm-hmm. But, but for me, it was Koloff or Bruiser Brody. Those would have been the two for me that, would have worked, except, of course, we know Bruiser Brody wasn't ready to go get a paycheck and do the job to Hogan and then wind down at that point. But I think he also, character-wise, would have fit really well in that WrestleMania two role. Yeah, what was brought up was the possibility of the Freebirds turning heel, I suspect maybe like middle of 1985, and doing Terry Gordy versus Hulk Hogan as the WrestleMania mm, yeah. event. With and this is a key component with Michael Hayes as Terry Gordy's mouthpiece. I, I could see that. I don't know where that would leave Buddy Roberts, 
But I, I mean, Gordy, Gordy had the size to to go with Hogan. He wasn't quite the monster that Hogan was typically fighting at that point. Almost almost everybody that Hogan was going against from 85 on, he was smaller than. Um, and Gordy was probably what about Hogan size, maybe a little smaller. Um, yeah, so that that might be an issue, but you certainly know Hayes could have talked to people in the building on that one. So it, it, that could have definitely worked too. It just where does that leave Buddy? Yeah, Buddy probably. I mean, they loved Buddy, and I don't think I don't think they would have liked it had Vince just sent Buddy home. I don't think they would have liked it had they made Buddy not part of the faction. But he, I mean, I liked Buddy, but he kind of stood out from day one as the the weak Freebird. Well, that, that was the point, though. I mean, he was the guy who was going to take the the pinfalls, and you know, the group the group needed that because to keep his heat, you didn't want Hayes taking the pinfalls because he was the guy you were supposed to go. Oh, I can't believe that guy got away with it again. And yeah. Gordy was the monster that leaves Buddy, and also as. He was the worker when Gordy and Hayes needed to learn how to work a little bit. I don't know that Hayes ever completely did that, but um, uh, no. he, he he was a worker to get them time to get to a higher level. No, I I definitely see that. I remember, I mean, watching uh, Mid South Wrestling in 1980 on cable when it was Michael Hayes and Terry Gordy, and then all of a sudden Michael Hayes suffered an injury and. They brought Buddy in as the third Freebird, and it, it looked good in 1980, 1981. I thought by this point, 1986, or yeah, 1986, Buddy was looking a little bit old. Yeah, and, and he was, but man, a little as we know how bad the Freebirds would get later. Now, I, I agree with you. Main event for this show is Magnum TA defeating Nikita Koloff. Must have been a non-title match or a DQ because Nikita was the U.S. champion at this point. This feud had been going on. These guys had been on the road since February, and they're still going at it. But it was a hot feud in the summer, and it's still summer. Yeah, you know, Magnum TA is an interesting one because there's always a discussion. Some people talk about how, oh, it was such a shame he got hurt. He could have been so huge, the JCP Hogan. I actually think this was his peak, and I don't know that he was going to go higher than where he, he was here. Not saying he might not have got a short run similar to a you know a Ronnie Garvin or or something like that. But I, I think his look started to become dated by the end of 86. The the Magnum PI say uh Matt Houston Burt Reynolds thing was kind of going out of style a little bit. And when you're looking at the people being pushed uh, in other places the Hogans and the Von Erics and the the Pretty Boys and it, it, I, I don't know that Magnum TA's look really matched up to the glitziness that some fans were starting to expect on a show. Yeah, I mean, I have said it before. I think that Magnum peaked during the the Great American Bash in '86, and the arrow was pointed downward at this point. But I mean, I, I'm not an expert. That's just my opinion. Moving to an AWA show in 1986. This is September 13th, the next night, in the Oakland Alameda County Coliseum Arena in in Oakland. That is a big building, and when you only draw 1,374 spectators to it, that's going to look awfully empty. 
Brent, 1986 was absolutely brutal for the AWA. Coming into the year, I still bought them as a major league, not as major league as the WWF or JCP or Bill Watts' promotion. But, I mean, by the end of the year, it was clear that this was no longer a major league group. No, they were going out. I mean, their shows didn't look major league on on tapings. My first exposure to AWA was the Road Warriors, who I absolutely adored. They actually, my my very first wrestling tape, I purchased at a Toys R Us. It was a little Road Warriors tape that was supposed to have three matches, so it said on the back, but there were actually only two. So I got irritated, made my mom return it and get me a Nerf football instead. <laughs> um, but um, I was a big Road Warriors fan. So when they left AWA, to me, that was similar to Hogan leaving AWA. It was just such a huge hole. And so many of the guys that they were running on the cards were either not there yet or were has-beens that it, it just it didn't, to me, seem on the same level as the other things I was watching. No, and you, know, you brought up a good point with the Road Warriors. When they were in the AWA in late 85, early 86, it felt to me like they had outgrown that promotion and they were due to come in and be regulars either with the WWF or JCP, the NWA. And when they finally showed up on in the NWA in like February 86, it almost felt overdue to me. It did. And there were so many great feuds that were open because the tag team scene was so good at that point in Crockett. Yeah. Speaking of the tag team scene, well, we'll get to that in a minute. Earthquake Ferris and Ryoma Goo ended up without a winner as a time limit draw. I have nothing to say about either of those guys. No offense. Larry Zabisco defeats Greg Gagne by disqualification. Larry Zabisco, it felt like he was in the AWA forever. And you know what? Back then, he was there four years, 84 until 88 when he went to JCP. That is a long time for a heel to be in a promotion. It was, and this this was a little bit of a family feud since Larry Zbysko married into the family. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I didn't see Larry's work with Bruno until years later, so I didn't have an appreciation of what he was capable of. To me, he was just this guy who was kind of boring telling me that he was a legend, and I could never figure out why. Okay, no, that makes sense, because if you weren't familiar with Larry, I mean, he wouldn't shut up about, you know, I'm the man who retired Bruno Sammartino, and I mean, even when he was in the AWA, but, you know, I mean, I liked Larry enough. I liked his interviews. Yes, maybe he gets too much crap for his his stalling in his matches, but I, I, at this point, I'm a little bit surprised that neither Mid-South nor JCP has a role for him. Then again, again, maybe it's because he didn't want to leave because of his girlfriend. I think Donna was his girlfriend at the time. You know, and he actually did do some good work later with Arn Anderson as a tag team um, in WCW. So he wasn't completely useless or anything. He just was working a style that was a little slower than I was comfortable with at that time. And then Greg Gagne, that physique. Again, growing up as a mower WWF fan, you saw a physique like that, and you're just like, uh, where's Tony Atlas? Where's Butsky? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I liked Greg Gagne. I acknowledged that he was a good worker. I acknowledged that he could take care of himself outside of the ring, which a lot of people may not be familiar with. 
but you could never see him in the WWF. You could never see him in JCP. And by the way, before someone says, yeah, he wrestled a match or two in in WWF, that's all it was. And then he did the Rambo thing, and that just came across as so nerdy. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, like, oh, people say I'm too small. I don't have a good physique, but now I'm Rambo. Oh, that that was just and, and that was like AWA in a nutshell. Just not hip, just not cool. The, trying to be cool and failing miserably. I mean, when they gave Jim Brunzel the Bruce Springsteen gimmick and they gave Greg Gagne the Rambo gimmick, it really looked like they were just trying to out WWF the WWF and it was terrible. And then, yeah, at the very next match, which we're going to mention, they had two guys who were cool. So, Eileen <laughs> Khan and Boris Sukhoff? No. Sean Michaels yeah. <laughs> and Marty Jannetty defeat Ali Khan and Boris Zukov. I mean, I remember when I first saw them bring out a team called the Midnight Rockers at the beginning of 86. And to me, it felt like such a clown show. We have, One promotion has the Midnight Express and the Rock and Roll Express, and these guys have the Midnight Rockers. It was so embarrassing. It was such a Rock and Roll Express ripoff. And then the match started. And you can see right away these guys were good. Their their work with Summers and Buddy Rose was just top-notch. I mean, some of the best tag team matches that were going in that period of time. Yeah, I agree. I mean, they had a, a match of the year candidate. Actually, a couple of, like, four-and-a-half-star matches on TV. Yeah, they they seemed... I, I get that the Midnight Rockers was kind of a copycat thing, but... To me, they did seem a little out of place in the AWA because I could see them as guys who were cool, who actually did party, who actually did, and we know they did. Mm. Um, who, and that's something I didn't get from the other gimmicks that were going on in the AW at the, AWA at the time. Yeah, I, 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 they did look out of place. I mean, the, I, I give the AWA credit for trying. They're trying to come up with young guys with a hip gimmick. It's just, you know, when the Rock and Roll Express are are already established on one channel, you know, calling yourselves the Midnight Rockers, I kind of question it. But you know what? At the end of the day, it worked. It it did. And I mean, hey, you know what they say about wrestling? If everything can be copied. So, oh, yeah. The the best booker is is a great thief. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and let me throw this in, uh, Boris Zukov. If there is any such thing as the perfect AWA guy doing a Russian gimmick, it's Boris Zukov. He's small, he's not that good, but the AWA's got to have a Russian. His claim to fame is the world's biggest forehead. <laughs> you can show a movie, you can have that as a, as a drive in theater. Uh, now, candidate. For the worst feud of all time, Jimmy Snuka defeats Colonel De Beers by countout. This feud starts when Colonel De Beers, a South African white supremacist, shows up in the AWA. So right there, I'm not liking this angle. And in 1986, I was like, oh, my God, this sucks. Get this off my TV. And because Snuka was a person of color, Colonel De Beers pile drives him outside the ring. Snook is left in a puddle of blood, and we have a feud. And this isn't the 1981 Jimmy Snooker. This is Jimmy Snooker's corpse trying to feed off his former fame in the WWF. I, I, I think it's crazy that that was a thing in 1986, much less that Colonel De Beers was still dragging that gimmick out in uh, 
UWF in 92, I think it was, that he was on one of their opening shows. To his credit, he he generally lost the feuds, unlike Triple H with Booker T, but <laughs> it was just such an uncomfortable gimmick. It went that level farther. There was a lot of racially tinged angles that were occurring in other promotions. I mean, certainly Memphis and Mid-South had some stuff that was questionable, yeah. especially when looked at today. But the Colonel DeBeer's stuff was kind of like, here's this stuff over here that's questionable. And then he went like 40 times past that. Yeah. And again, when I talk about Colonel DeBeer's, you know, that gimmick, I'm not looking at it through, you know, 2020 eyes. In 1986, you know, this comes on my television. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, we were there, there was entire movements about boycotting South Africa, divesting. I mean, Ronald Reagan was taking a huge amount of heat on not being harder on South Africa. And then you've got this guy on TV. It, it, it hit a little too close to home. No, I, I agree. I, and again, you know, don't mean to be repetitive, but that's not looking at it through, you know, 34 years later at the time, you know, everyone was kind of appalled by this gimmick. Nick Bockwinkle, the AWA World's Heavyweight Champion, defeats Sheik Adnan El Casey. Al Casey looked like an old man when he first showed up in the AWA five years earlier. Didn't look any younger today, but oh my gosh, he's got a pay-per-view coming up in five years. What a weird career. Billy White Wolf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Doing the, doing the gimmick in uh, WWF as uh, Native American. What strikes me is I, almost, I saw this match and I'm looking at it thinking, was there a no-show? Because he wasn't even close to a regular wrestler by this point. He was barely working. He was really a manager. It's, it's the equivalent of Bobby Heenan suddenly wrestling Hogan for a title match. So I don't remember the booking well enough from week to week to, to know if there was a, a reason that this became a match, if he got himself into a, a stupid contract situation or something. But it, it really stands out like a sore thumb to me, considering how little he had, was working in the ring by this point. No, I agree with you. Um, he was he was a manager. I don't remember him wrestling on TV in 86. I mean, I know they did some crazy Lou Albano versus Bob Backlund match up in Portland, Maine at one point. But I mean, this is, this is a major arena. And while the WWF might have had a certain margin of error, the AWA didn't. This looks like a big mistake to me. Well, 1,374 fans. So obviously it was a big mistake. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, I don't know if they could have put on a, a different match that would have done drawn differently. But at the same time, hey, you got to book long term and build up your heels to wrestle Nick Bockwinkle. Now we have Buddy Rose and Doug Summers defending the AWA Tag Team Championships with Sherry Martell in their corner against Kurt Henning and Scott Hall. Uh, they won by disqualification. Rose, Summers, and Sherry, I mean, you want to talk about the sum adds up to more than the individual parts. They were a great tandem. They, they, they really were. Together, they they were able to, you know, they do the, the kayfabe way of saying, oh, they they work a tag match with one mind. They know what the other's thinking. But you really kind of got that perception from watching the two of them that they did have one mind and they always knew what the other was doing. And that came across in the ring with how they worked their matches. And then Kurt Hennig being in this match, even even in 86, he was a quality worker. So I have a feeling this one was the best match on the card by far. 
Oh, I, I would put money on that. You know, people think Kurt Henning like came out of the womb and was a great worker. He was kind of rough, like when he was in the WWF in Portland, but 86 was his breakthrough year. I used to look at him and say, ah, this guy sucks. You know, they're doing the, the young, handsome baby face thing, the white bread baby face. And in 86, like by this point, it was pretty obvious that this guy had a really bright future. And I don't remember if it was 86 or 87, but his 60 minute title match with Bockwinkle was one of my all time favorite matches. I believe that aired New Year's Eve in 1986, and I wasn't around to watch it. But anyway, (laughs) we do have time for one more show. The date is September 14th, 1986, Tulsa, Oklahoma. I don't know if this is the correct order of matches because this is kind of all over the place, but it may have been a TV taping. I don't know. The Libyan defeats the Glass Man. I don't know anything about either of these guys. Never heard of them. (laughs) All right. I've seen them on TV as just, you know, underneath guys, but no comment. Then we get to a UWF World Heavyweight title match. Steve Williams versus Terry Gordy ends without a winner as a no contest. Of all the matches we've talked about, this is the number one match I would have wanted to see. Two super heavyweights that were going at it and then. Their matches on TV were incredible. I mean, this was a great feud. This is what the very definition of what I hear termed as a hoss fight. You know, two, to use JR's term, two big old hosses having a battle. And, you know, Terry Gordy was just top-notch worker. And to me in 1986, Steve Williams, he just, he had an it factor with me. I saw this guy and I just like, I would not want to mess with this guy. Which is true in reality, yeah. but some guys you don't want to mess with. It doesn't come across as TV on TV, and some guys you wouldn't think twice about messing with come across as tough guys on TV. So he really played that off, and I can just imagine the style of match that they had was very much on their feet <laughs> for the oh, most yeah. part. <laughs> yeah, you know, we talked a little bit about you know Terry Gordy maybe wrestling Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania about three months earlier. In 1986, the UWF became the UWF. We're no longer Mid-South Wrestling. We go all over the country. We're the UWF. We're having a tournament for our championship. I saw Terry Gordy as every bit a world's heavyweight champion as Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan. I thought he was that major league. And until he screwed up and had the car accident, and Watts decided he, he just had enough of, you know, the Freebirds nonsense. I mean, I, I thought of him that highly. Like, I thought he could be, and if he was NWA champion, I wouldn't question it. I'd be like, okay, he's worthy of this. He, he certainly had the, the work rate, the ability. I think he was capable of working face or heel, despite his size, which not every big guy can do that. He wasn't a great, great promo, but he could do a, a, a solid promo, in my opinion to sell a match it's just a shame that he messed himself up and became a a shell of himself later on because he was really he was really in the conversation for best bigger wrestler in the 80s i mean top five level yeah he i mean in interviews he he came across as someone who was not intelligent which kind of worked to his advantage you know okay i got this big dumb guy who's crazy and is gonna beat up everybody um, yeah, but what happened to Terry was awful. He overdosed twice, like two years apart. He like died from a drug overdose and they brought him back 
and the second time he was not the same. Yeah, they dragged him out in ECW, and it was not a pleasant thing to watch. Um, (laughs) Same thing in in Smoky Mountain. Leroy Brown comes out of retirement. As far as I know, he hadn't wrestled since like 83 or early 84 to beat Bobby Perez. Any Leroy Brown memories? I'm trying to remember. Was he part of the Zambui Express? Yes. Okay. It was him and Ray Candy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who's also on this card, isn't he? Or no, he was on the Florida card. Okay. Yeah, I mean, Leroy Brown, he had the size. He also was involved in some angles that maybe aren't as appropriate today as they were oh, back yeah, then. Oh, yeah, that's right. But, you know, I, I actually, this is going to sound weird. I have a lot of respect for some of the uh, the black wrestlers that did that sort of thing. And they're like, you know what? If that's what they're going to want if that's what they're gonna think let's make some money off of this stuff and let's make some money and do it with some dignity though you know i nobody was gonna say that you're you know you're an uncle tom or whatever for doing those angles and they were gonna look at him and say well hey man this guy's really doing a good job with this character he's making these people hate him and he's making some money off of a bunch of people who otherwise wouldn't want to give him the time of day Good for him, I guess. (laughs) Uh, I I hear what you're saying. I mean, I really liked Leroy Brown, early Leroy Brown, when he was in Los Angeles and California, and then he slowed down big time because of health issues. Uh, Iceman King Parsons defeats Michael Hayes by disqualification. Right around this time, I find myself wondering, why is Iceman not in WCW? Why didn't they go after him? Because as a, a mid-card guy, I think he would have been very effective there. Yeah, I tell you, I'm, I'm looking at this Parsons-Hayes match, and I'm just thinking, wow, they should have had a hair-versus-hair match. That would have sold out anywhere, But because uh, they, they both had that hair. Interesting. Parsons, I've never heard if he had any particular difficulties or anything. Um, I've never heard if he was hard to work with, drug problems, anything like that. I mean, he was in WCW, World Class Championship Wrestling, so... There's probably a fair chance that he did dabble in drugs, if nothing else. But well, I mean, most of the wrestlers did. Yeah. Well, there's there's dabbling and being able to work, and there's not being able to hold up your end of the bargain. Yeah. But yeah, he he was a guy. You just wonder when with guys like that if maybe they just upset the wrong person one time, and that person is high up in the the think tank of jcp and maybe leans in somebody ear and say nah we don't want that guy he's trouble no i we have a perfect example of that guy coming up okay (laughs) all right joe savoldi defeats jeff rates now right around this time we're still technically in the summer we had here in boston at midnight on channel 25 jcp would be on worldwide wrestling and then at one in the morning they had icw Okay, mm-hmm. and Joseph Oldy was the promoter's son. He was the ICW champion, and he was in the middle of a feud with a guy named Phil Apollo, who went by Vince Apollo in world class. They looked like two guys who had big futures. Like you would tune in this decidedly minor league promotion, and Joseph Oldy stood out to me as a guy who had a future. And obviously, it didn't work out for him. Is that the same Phil Apollo that became Doink at some point? Uh, no, that was Doink oh, was, that was Ray, Ray Apollo. Ray Apollo. Sorry, sorry. That's okay. 
Yeah, you know, I I never saw Joe Savaldi. I, I I never did. I know the name because obviously I've heard of the IWC in the Northeast area still going on when ECW was going on and guys going back and forth working there. But I, I never saw Joe Savoldi. If if he was a promoter's son and he had an it factor, good for him because so many other promoter sons didn't have an it factor a lot of times. Like, well, you know, Eric Watts or uh Angelo Mosca, some of those guys, but I didn't see him. I've always kind of wanted to get a hold of some uh, IWC tapes, though. Kind of check that out, because I hear a lot about some of the guys that went through there and then moved on to other things. No, they're, they're really, I can't think of anyone who got their start in ICW and was big. Uh, they A lot of the time, they brought out guys from the WWF, like they had Bob Backlund. They had Carlos Colon. Actually, Carlos Colon was a, a big part of it at one point. Uh, Dr. D. David Schultz was there right after he left the WWF. But, I mean, it was, like I said, it was it was a fun promotion that you watched on UHF television at 1 in the morning on a Saturday night. Uh, let me see. Buddy Roberts defeats Bobby Perez. We already talked a little bit about Bobby. Uh, Buddy, excuse me. UWF TV title match. Terry Taylor defeats the one-man gang. Terry Taylor, from what I've heard, was that guy we were just talking about when we were discussing Iceman Parsons that supposedly, I heard many moons ago, that Terry Taylor just pissed Dusty Rhodes off once in 1985 and Dusty never wanted to use him again. And he just wasn't Vince McMahon's cup of tea. So this is kind of Terry Taylor's peak right here. It's it's interesting you say that because I've heard some bad stories about Terry Taylor later when he was working on the booking team in WCW as well. So he kind of has a a history of uh, pissing people off, apparently. But to me, Taylor came across as a little generic, kind of a a lesser version of something I could see with a a, a better wrestler. Um, his his work rate, his ring work was fine, but if I'm looking at Terry Taylor. I'm sitting there and thinking, well, he's a low-rent Ric Flair or he's a low-rent Kerry Von Erich. He didn't come across to me as having that that same level of charisma they did if he was going to push into either of those kind of roles as a a top babyface or a top heel. No, I can see that. You know what? Kind of a junior Kerry Von Erich is a good description of Terry Taylor in this role at this time. But he was like the number three or number four baby face. So I, I thought it all worked out. One man gang is not far at all from becoming the UWF world's heavyweight champion on a forfeit. And unlike Terry Gordy, I did not think he was a big enough star to be in that role. He had a good look when he got to WWF. I was like, wow, you know, this guy's got a, a neat look. And then of course they took that away and went a whole different direction. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, I have a soft spot for him because he was such a gentleman in life, a really nice guy in a lot of ways later in his life when he interacted with fans and things. But he didn't come across to me as a top talent. Being this supposable gang member from the streets of Chicago, oh boy. His, his look didn't quite match with that. It was like something you'd see on an after-school special that was trying not to offend anybody with what a person from the streets of Chicago looks like. <laughs> and so um, that that was a bit of an issue for me. 
And I just never thought that he was a a good enough worker to overcome some of that. And I didn't think he was a particularly great promo either. No. No, I mean, he needed a manager to do his talking for him. He's a guy I could see doing a run with Hulk Hogan, which he eventually did. Yeah, um, Monster he, of the Month, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, a good, good way of putting it, Monster of the Month, but that's it. And when when one TV program has Hulk Hogan as champion, the other one has Ric Flair, and you've got one-man gang, you've got a problem. But anyway, and final, I don't know if that, this clearly isn't the main event, but this is the last match. Hot Stuff International, Sting and Rick Steiner defeats Chavo Guerrero and Iceman Parsons by DQ. Iceman's working double duty here. Talk about a great, underrated, and forgotten faction, Hot Stuff International. Sting and Steiner are just getting started. Steiner coming in and taking over for the Ultimate Warrior, who left after Bill Watts kicked him in the ribs. Uh, they got rid of the... Uh, uh, what was that tag team called? I, I, what was that tag team called? I'm not remembering. Oh, um, the Blade Runners. Yeah, Blade. You're right, Blade Runners. Yep. Yeah, they got rid of the Blade Runners. They put Sting and Steiner together, managed by Eddie Gilbert, uh, with Missy Hyatt on his side. Hot Stuff International was great in 1986. Oh, fantastic! I mean, Eddie was second to none on the mic, and Missy was 1986. Missy was. She was a beautiful woman and a lot better. You need to think about the women that they used to trot out on TV for Ric oh, Flair yeah. or whatever as hot women he's taken home. And you're kind of looking at him going, really? Really? <laughs> it, not Missy. Missy, you were like, oh, yeah, that's who Ric Flair should be taken home. And so she was a big part of the appeal of that. She really was. And staying green as grass, but such a great look, such a absolutely phenomenal look. You could tell he was going to be a star from very early on. No, I agree. And, you know, the the guy just kind of steals Brian Bosworth's look. And Bosworth was a huge deal at the University of Oklahoma at this time in 86. And Steiner, you know, he was a prelim guy. I remember him in the AWA, but he had a good look. And. See, this is what we talk about a lot on Stick to Wrestling. You say, you say, okay, well, if world class, you know, they had to use Black Bart because who else could they use? Look, Mid South figures it out. They have a guy like Steve Borden. They have a guy like Rick Rob Recksteiner, and they see the potential in them, and they put them in a in a position to to succeed. It's funny you mentioned Black Bart because I was thinking that very thing when you're talking about one man gang versus Hogan when somebody's watching TV for who the champion is. I was thinking, oh, wait till Black Bart. But <laughs> uh, I have to love the Steiners because they're University of Michigan alum, and so am I. So oh, um, <laughs> I, I, I have to be partial to them. Rick Steiner really did a good job when he, when he got to WCW and his doing the the dumb guy role and and then working with uh, Robin Green, known as woman most of the time, and Nancy Sullivan, whatever name you want to pick. That, that was such a great angle, and it's commonly talked about as one of the biggest pops of all time when he won that TV title. Um, I, I, I think that he did a, a really nice job of combining professional wrestling with a degree of amateur wrestling that made it come across as is legit in a time before MMA was, was a thing. He was doing the suplexes and the, the sit outs. And uh, that was something a little different, interesting for that time period of wrestling. You weren't seeing a lot of other guys doing that so much anymore. 
since the more amateur style had kind of gone out of style from the 60s and the 70s when that was more uh, more of the case. No, I hear what you're saying. Brett, I want to thank you for being on Stick to Wrestling. This has been an excellent episode. Thank you for your efforts. Oh, great to be here. Happy to be here and uh, hope everything went well for everybody and uh, hope I can be back again sometime. Well, for, for sure. And uh, I want to thank our producer, Lightning Lou Kippelman, for all the great work he does making this listenable. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. We'll see you next week. This concludes our podcast day.